Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. I thought I'd share with you one of my favorite Christmas movies that I was able to introduce to my girls recently, and that's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this story, but if you're not, let me just give you kind of the Cliff Notes version of the plot, just so you can track along with everyone. So the Grinch, he is this green, bitter, grouchy, cave-dwelling creature with a heart that is two sizes too small. He lives on snowy Mount Crumpet, a steep 3,000-foot mountain just north of Whoville, home of the merry and warm-hearted Hoos. His only companion is his faithful dog, Max. And from his perch on top of Mount Crumpet, the Grinch can hear the noisy Christmas festivities that take place in Whoville. And annoyed and unable to understand the Hoos' happiness, He devises a plot to descend on the town and deprive them of their Christmas presents, their roast beast, their hoo-hash, their decorations, thus preventing Christmas from ever coming. However, he learns in the end that despite his success in taking away all the Christmas things from the who's, Christmas comes just the same. He then realizes that Christmas is more than just gifts and presents Touched by this, his heart grows three sizes larger, and he returns all the presents and trimmings and is warmly welcomed into the community of Hoos. Thus, the turning point of the story comes when the Grinch has a perspective change. He suddenly realizes that Christmas is not exactly what he thought it was, and that it's actually something more. And so here's how Dr. Seuss is only he can write makes the point. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas, perhaps means a little bit more. Christmas books and movies are usually about perspective change in some capacity, that these secular books and films have picked up on the important idea and the narrative surrounding the Christmas story, that it's about a perspective change. That could be Charlie Brown, Ebenezer Scrooge, George Bailey. Pick whoever you want from a Christmas movie or a book. And there's something about those stories that demands a reorientation, a renewal of hope. Unfortunately, these Christmas movie messages, for the most part, miss the essence of hope through the birth of Jesus Christ. An Advent season, which is what we're in, is a looking back to the birth of Jesus with a hopeful anticipation of his second coming. It's meant to be a season where our spiritual perspective is reoriented, a time for us to remember that the future will be as bright as the past has been dark, 
The advent of Jesus Christ is the significant moment in biblical history where we see God fulfill his promise and bring hope to people who are in utter darkness. One of the clearest examples of a perspective change is where we are in Isaiah chapter 9. And last week we looked at this passage and Pastor Will walked us through Jesus as our wonderful counselor. And this week we're looking at Jesus as our mighty God. To give you a framework to kind of think through it, that if last week we looked at Jesus and considered his wisdom and wonder, this week we will consider his strength and his sovereignty. So hopefully you've been able to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to gift one of those to you. We have extras at the info bar, and you uh, can stop by, and we will be happy to give you one of those as a gift. But I'm going to ask all of us to stand as you are able for the reading of God's word, and we will read verses 1 through 3, and then verse number 6 of Isaiah chapter nine. This is what the word of God says. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has, has light shone. You have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Jumping down to verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let us ask for God's help this morning. Our Father, we come to you again and we ask for your help to reorient ourselves to the truths of scriptures that perhaps this week has been hard and difficult and felt hopeless and there's been sickness and strife and sorrow. We pray that you would help us to put aside those things that would distract us from the truths of the gospel, that your words would be clear to us, that our hearts would be changed. And this morning we would find the scriptures to be a balm to our heavy hearts. We ask for your help this morning. In your son's name, amen. You may be seated. Just to give you a, a forewarning about this particular sermon, to let you know where we're going, if I could describe this sermon to you, it's going to be like a meal. And we're going to start, we're going to have to eat our vegetables first before we get to the dessert. But along the way, we're going to eat a lot of really good things. So just stay with me. I promise the dessert is worth it. We're going to look at the Old Testament truths of Jesus as the mighty God, the New Testament truths as Jesus as the mighty God. And we're going to look and see what the present reality for those who are followers of Jesus 
what that means for us. So first, we're going to look at the Old Testament perspective. And last week, we received kind of an introduction to the book of Isaiah. And so I'm going to give a quick recap for those of you who weren't here to help us appreciate the beauty that is found in Isaiah 9, that this is taking place during a very dark and scary and gloomy time for Judah, and there are threats all about them coming. So we get the sense in verse 1, it says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. If we look back at chapter number 8, we see these this great bleak picture, and it says, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged that there is this distress, this darkness, they, and they will be thrust into thick darkness, it says. And so what's going on is the book of Isaiah records God's words to God's people who have become rebellious against the one true God, Yahweh. They have forsaken the Lord, they despise the Holy One, they've broken his laws, and now they are utterly estranged from him. The result was a season of discipline from the Lord where he says, I will turn my hand now against you. I will bring punishment to you. God was weary of the waywardness of his people. And he intended to awaken them from their spiritual slumber by means of suffering, affliction, and hardship. This discipline will come at the hands of other nations, but specifically the Assyrians. So Judah is in this very dark spot, and it's only getting worse. And so Isaiah chapter 9 is written in the middle of this devastating season where the king of Judah refuses to trust in God again. And this is where we see gloom and anguish and thick darkness, that the looming of scary threats, that spiritually things don't look good, politically things don't look good, and Isaiah is calling the people of Judah to repent. That the political and spiritual leaders are selling out, the Assyrians' power is only growing more powerful, and it feels like the waters of trouble are rising higher and higher. And this is the context for which Isaiah attempts to persuade the people of Judah that God is worthy of their trust, that they should not fear, they should not make themselves proud, they shouldn't be self-reliant, they should instead trust and obey God. And in trying to convince them to trust God, Isaiah now tells them about what God is going to do in the future. And we don't want to miss this because this is where we see a perspective change in the text. That up to this point, it's been a lot of really doom and gloom. But here, Isaiah desires to convince them that the future is going to be very, very bright for those who follow after God. In, in the dark times Judah was facing, what was seemingly... The most unspectacular thing is promised to them, but it's exactly what they needed. So while Isaiah is telling them of the incoming judgment, he gives them hope with a birth announcement. He says, a son is going to be born. And we might think like, I don't know if that's really what they're wanting right now. Like, a huge army is going to come to your aid. God is going to rain down judgment on the Assyrians. 
everything's going to be okay. But the reality of what Isaiah says here should have sent an earthquake through his hearers had they known about God and the world. Because the God who made the world, rules the world, upholds the world, Isaiah says he has promised to now come down to be in the world. Not as the highest, strongest, most powerful, but as the weakest, smallest, and seemingly most obscure. That God was not going to come on the clouds, but God was going to come to earth in a swaddle. Fullness of divinity in a diaper. Pastor Ray Ortland helps us think through this text in this way. He says, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of this world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. That the reason this was such good news is not because God is sending any child, but he is going to send himself. What Isaiah is relaying to Judah is that God isn't going to send someone who is just strong. He's going to send someone who is God himself. So we have this Hebrew word here for mighty God. So I'm going to ask you to participate with me. Say El, Gabor, El Gabor. You are now all Hebrew scholars. And so what that means is that mighty God, or to think about it a little bit differently, the word Gabor means strong, mighty, describes heroes like Nimrod, and Genesis says a mighty warrior, a mighty hunter before the Lord, or think of David's mighty warriors in 2 Samuel that depicts bravery, courage, a call to action. But when you combine Gabor with El, El is a name for God. Think of Elohim, El Shaddai, that when they hear El Gabor put together, they know that Isaiah is talking about God himself. That those who are listening to Isaiah's words should have had their minds immediately switch back to stories of old. Like we read of in Deuteronomy chapter 5 where it says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord, your God, brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord, your God, has commanded that you observe the Sabbath day. That they should have thought of all those stories of God's wonderful, mighty acts of old. And should have remembered that God is the one who did it. Yahweh is the one who rescued them. Yahweh is the one who has kept them. Yahweh is the one who defeated all the enemies. Because Israel recognized that they needed someone better than just a mighty, strong person. They had tried that before. They had trusted in Samson and in Saul and in David and king after king, ruler after ruler. They all let them down. They didn't need someone who was merely just powerful. They needed someone who was all-powerful and not just all-powerful, but good. 
This son will have God's true might about him, power so great that he can absorb all the evil which can be hurled against him until there's nothing left, that he can take all the wickedness of the world and he is not phased by it. We read in Isaiah chapter 63, verses 7 through 9, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, According to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness of the house of Israel, he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. And in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. That this too is talking about the mighty God who loves the wayward people and comes in that in their affliction, he takes it from them and still continues forward. That in their suffering and in their hardship, he says, don't worry about it. I can handle it. Or Psalm 50, verse 1, that says, The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Describing that the Mighty God is in control of all things. Everything that is happening in the universe, that is seen and unseen, this Mighty God, this Promised One, is in control of it all. This is in Psalm 45, 3. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. That the description we're getting for God and God in the flesh is that he is more wonderful, more powerful, more spectacular than anything we can come up with in our mind. And Isaiah does not say that this child will be like God. He doesn't say that he will speak and act like God. He writes that the mighty God, El Gabor, is God in the flesh. We read in John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And given in this context, we see that this child, yes, will be a wonderful counselor, but he will also be a warrior. That's behind some of the picture of the Almighty, that he is powerful and no one can stop him. Not the Assyrians, not the Egyptians, not the Babylonians, not any other world power. Exodus 15.3 says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Or Isaiah 42.13, The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal, he cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foe. And that's why Israel needs not just someone who is strong, but also someone who is good. Not someone who's going to take that power and become a bigger bully of the nations around, but someone who's going to use that power for good. Use that power to protect and care for those who are his faithful followers. That this is what Judah needed to hear. Maybe not what they expected to hear, that a baby is going to be born. So those in Isaiah are left with a hopeful anticipation that at some point in the future, 
this birth announcement would come true. That this child who is God in the flesh would be the great hero that they had long been waiting for. The promised Messiah back we read about in Genesis chapter 3. And if you're familiar with the Christian Bible, you know how the story goes. And we'll read in Luke chapter 2 and see the New Testament revelation of who Jesus is. So in Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 2, 1, 26 through 38, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom shall be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born and will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and in this sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. If we jump ahead in the story to Luke chapter 2. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea. To Bethlehem to the town of David. Because he belonged to the house and lineage of David. And he went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him. And was expecting a child. And while they were there the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in the manger because there was no guest room available for them. Verse 19 says, But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Or as the hymn writer put it, the fullness of God in the helpless babe. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. That perhaps because we're so familiar with this story of Jesus being born to the Virgin Mary and the long-told promise, that perhaps it's just like, yeah, I know the story and we want to move on, but we lose the awe and wonder of what is actually going on in the scriptures. David Platt says it this way. He says, the most astounding miracle claim really in all the Bible is that Jesus is God. That the child born that we celebrate on Christmas is God and the flesh who has come to us. And when we realize and wonder the beauty of this, and I say realize, like the more you think about it, the more baffling it should be, 
God in the flesh. But it's the beauty of the Bible and the beauty of the gospel because this is the only way that we can be saved from our sins. By one who can fully identify with us, fully tempted by sin, and yet powerful over sin. And one who can fully identify with God, who can bear the divine justice and judgment do you and me in our sin. That instead of being bored by the story of Jesus born at Christmas, it should cause us to be in a place of wonder and amazement. That the powerful God loved wayward people like the Israelites, like you and me, so much to send his own son, whom is God in the flesh, to be born as an infant. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but infants can't really do much by themselves. They need someone to feed them, to change their diaper, to pick them up and put them in the crib. And yet at the same time as Jesus was 100% man born as an infant, he is also 100% God sustaining everything in the universe at the same time. And that mystery should be a wonder to us. But it's true, and we read in Hebrews chapter 1, but in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir to all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That this is the Jesus born as a baby that we celebrate at Christmas. That this baby was controlling all things. And if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, that he doesn't stay a baby, that he grows like the rest of us and continues and does these wonderful, mighty acts displaying that he is the mighty God, proving that he is the mighty God. And for me, when I think of Jesus and his might, I'm reminded of Jesus calming the storm, which I think is one of the most underrated miracles of Jesus' ministry. That it takes place in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 4, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that he and his disciples, they go on their first boat ride together, and there's this terrible, awful, disastrous storm. That the disciples are fighting for their lives and Jesus is in the back of the boat taking a nap. You know, he's got his pillow over his head because he doesn't want to get woken up as they're traveling across. And they're fighting and spinning and reeling and panicking. And Peter finally yells out, Jesus, don't you care about us? And Jesus stands up. I imagine as he wakes up from his nap, he yawns and he looks out at the storm and the scripture text says this. He goes, he rebuked the wind and the waves. That he looks at the winds and the waves and he says this, knock it off. That rebuked, rebuked is what you do to someone who is underneath you. Like you can rebuke your children. Hey, do not hit your brother. Hey, do not throw a ball in the house. You can rebuke an employee. You will not show up an hour late for work. 
And Jesus rebukes the weather because he is the master of it. He owns it. He stands up and turns it off. To, to paint a different picture, it's like someone whose car alarm is going off in the parking lot and some guy comes running out real embarrassed and is like, sorry, it's mine. And he pulls out the remote, click, click, it turns off. That Jesus stands up and says, sorry, that's my storm, click, click, and it stops. That is the mighty God in the flesh. That is the power that Jesus has. And the disciples in that moment ask the most wonderful question. They say, what kind of man is this? That even the weather obeys him. And that's the point. What kind of man is this? This is the mighty God in the flesh. And we see this play out time and time again throughout the story in the life of Jesus. That he turns water into wine. That he walks on water. That he heals the blind, the dumb, the deaf, the lame, the lepers. He feeds multitudes of thousands with fish and loaves of bread. He casts out demons. He raises people from the dead. That this is Jesus, the mighty God, over and over again, showing his power and might, displaying that he is the God who controls and sustains all things. This is who Isaiah is telling Judah is going to come. This mighty king, ruler, hero is Jesus. And yet he appeared as a mere baby. And then if you're familiar with the story of Jesus and you jump to the end of his life, we're met with a scene that we're, we're left maybe a little confused. That We go, you know, that doesn't, doesn't necessarily sound like the mighty, powerful God told of long ago. This takes place in the Gospel of Mark again in chapter 14. And it reads this, it says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will be done. Perhaps you find yourself asking the question that I ask myself. What is the cause of the mighty God being so deeply distressed and troubled? If all that we've already read and talked about is true about Jesus, that he is the mighty God in flesh, what could cause him to be distressed and troubled? And what it is, is the price of sin. That the mighty, glorious, 
wonderful God submitted himself to weakness and humiliation of death so that he could purchase our forgiveness and give us an eternal hope and relationship with him forever. And this shines a new light on Jesus' mightiness. That his mightiness is not just about power over winds and waves. It's not just power over sicknesses. It's not just power over providing food for people out of nothing. But it's about the mightiness of his love to rescue wayward people. God's glory was not most shown by the majesty of his creation, although his glory is shown in creation, but by becoming a man and dying to save us. If you want to know who Jesus really is, he's not just the God who controls the winds and the waves, he's the God who is powerful enough to wrestle death and hell on your behalf and emerge victorious. That Jesus is so powerful, he can conquer the only permanent thing, death. He did it before with Lazarus and raising him from the dead. He did it with himself and raising from the dead. And says, not only did I raise from the dead, but I paid the price for all of your sins. Satan can no longer harm you and keep you from me. Isaiah 25 verse 8 has these beautiful words. It says, he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord will wipe away tears from our faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That's the gospel in the book of Isaiah, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born and planned before time even began by God. That says he swallowed up death for all all time. That he was powerful enough to conquer death once and for all. That no longer can Satan say, I've got a hold of you because of your sin. Jesus says, no, I paid for that. They're free from you. And he says, because they're mine, I will wipe away the tears from their eyes. Because they've experienced sorrow in wickedness, in evil in this world, but I am coming to make all things right. He says, I'm removing reproach of the people of the earth, that I am making a way for relationship for the people who are wandering far from me, who willingly wander far from me, and I'm going to make a path to bring them close to me. And then it finishes with, for the Lord has spoken, meaning and I'm going to do it. That's not just a hopeful promise. That is a guarantee. So we find ourselves with this picture of Jesus as the mighty God living on the earth, dying on the cross and rising again. And perhaps you sit there wondering, you're like, that's really great. Thank you for walking us through the Old Testament and the New Testament. But what about my present reality? Well, the people of Judah were told to look forward to the advent of this future king of hope. That as Isaiah's writing to them, speaking to them, letting them know, hey, there's going to be a baby that's going to be born, they don't experience that presently. That the Assyrians still come, 
that there's still sorrow and hardship, that there's suffering and pain. And they just kept looking forward to the hope of this promised hero who would come, this hero who was God in the flesh. And we know the story of what God did through Jesus. We know about Jesus dying on the cross as the fulfillment of God's plan from eternity past to eternity future. We know that the virgin did conceive, that God did send his son. We know that the angel said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. We're familiar with these Christmas stories that we read year after year. But when we read Isaiah chapter 9, and when we read these verses and these descriptors of Jesus, these names of Jesus, interesting in the laugh, Jesus is never referred to as the mighty God in the New Testament. No one ever calls him that. It's a description of what he's going to do, who he is, characteristics of him. And when we read Isaiah 9, we know how God kept his word. That the Old Testament is a beautiful tapestry of God's promises of forgiveness and reconciliation that are all fulfilled in Christ. And because we have the Bible, we get a sneak peek of what they only wish they had in Isaiah's time. What Abraham wished he had thousands of years ago. What the disciples wished they had that we get the cheat sheet of it. We know the story. We know how it finishes. That looking back at the Bible and the story of scriptures, we can see God's amazing plan. We know what God accomplished through Jesus. We know the story of the cross about how the Son of God willingly suffered death that he didn't deserve in order to bring forgiveness, peace, and reconciliation for sinful people like us. That the mighty God died for our sins in order to make peace with God possible. And we read in Colossians chapter 1. For in him, Jesus the mighty God, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And for those who have repented of your sins and received Christ, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You know the joy that comes with placing your trust in God. You know the beauty of believing the promises of God. You know that even though your past was filled with all manner of wickedness and evil, Jesus died to save you, forgive you, and cleanse you. And that past is wiped away. What's more, we know what the Bible says about the future. That the Bible promises that one day Jesus will return as that mighty warrior king, not again as a baby, but as a mighty warrior king coming from the clouds. As king of kings and lord of lords and will cast out Satan forever and he will bring 
all of his redeemed people into the new heaven and the new earth. And one day in the future, God will say, I make all things new. It's the very back part of the Bible, the story, Revelation 21, 6. And he will reign forever and ever, and no one will ever stop him. This is the second advent. We celebrate Advent to think of what has happened in Christ being born and think of what Christ is going to do in the future. That the people of God in the Old Testament were challenged to trust in God, to believe in him since one day he was going to change everything through his son. Their perspective needed to change about their present circumstances in light of their bright future. That they sat there probably hearing Isaiah and they're like, Man, I really hope you're telling the truth because the Assyrians are coming and times are getting bad. I hope things are as bright as you say they are. And as I said, we today have the benefit of knowing what the fulfillment of that promise looked like. We've experienced of seeing how God has kept his word through the pages of scripture. We know what the ultimate fulfillment looks like. And we know that no matter how dark life and circumstances look, our future in Christ is brighter beyond our belief. And so, perhaps this morning, you're here, and life has been incredibly hard. That there are circumstances which are causing you to be anxious, to be fearful be afraid, to be uncertain. And I want you to listen to the promises of God rooted in Christ, the mighty God. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28, Romans 8.37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Or Hebrews 12.3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted that we can take hope and comfort in these promises because Jesus is the mighty God who fulfilled the promises of God, who came to earth, born as God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for us, providing a way for us to have salvation with God. Christian, your life is incredibly bright with Christ. The promises are given to us who know about the advent of Jesus and who know about the story of redemption, that we know it is complete. That Isaiah 9-6 shows us that God keeps his promises. That it comforts us that when we see God's gracious deliverance of his people when things look very dark and very gloomy, 
that it gives us hope because we see that God is worthy of our trust. That God has never proven himself untrustworthy through the pages of scriptures in our lives. That for those of you who are experiencing dark times right now, or those of you who will experience dark times in the future, your future in Christ is incredibly bright. That the advent of Jesus promised in Isaiah chapter 9 is a perspective changer for us. It calls us to remember that Jesus is the mighty God who meets us in our greatest need. And as Jesus is the mighty God who can meet us in our greatest need, eternal separation from him because of our sin, we should have full confidence that Jesus can meet us in every other need that we have. So Advent is about looking forward. But we have to look back first to see what God has done to look forward. And that because Jesus is the mighty God, we can take our greatest needs to him.